As humans evolved, we developed forms of expression that transcend the limits of language. We can express ourselves in drawing and painting, and music and dance. And we have done so at least since humans painted images of large animals on the Lascaux cave walls and ceilings over 17,000 years ago. Humans are more observant, more expressive, and more clear thinking the more they draw. Computer scientists and practitioners now use AI to create drawings and paintings and to restore missing parts of old paintings. But wait, is it a painting if AI created it or collaborated in its making? To decide for yourself, watch the online video entitled The Next Rembrandt. And now consider this. In late June 2021, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam announced the completion of a project in which museum staff used AI to recreate and restore large parts of Rembrandt's painting, The Night Watch. Those parts were cut off to fit the original painting into a venue in the 18th century, removing entire figures. With the missing parts temporarily restored, we can see what Rembrandt's original looked like. In this episode of Mind the Gap, we will be talking with the president of Harvey Mudd College, Dr. Maria Clave, who has had a distinguished career as a theoretical computer scientist, scholar, and college administrator. Dr. Clave is also a gifted painter, a watercolorist. And unlike most of us, she did not stop drawing as a child and has been painting for longer than she has been a computer scientist. Hello, I'm Roland Trope, a national security lawyer. And I'm Mark Donner, a computer scientist. We are your hosts for this episode of Mind the Gap, Dialogues on Artificial Intelligence. In addition, we have two more hosts. I'm Rama Adams, a national security lawyer. And I'm Charles Palmer, a computer scientist. Each episode will be led by two of us, with the other two adding impromptu questions and comments as the spirit moves them. Dr. Clave, can we start by asking you, what prompted you to start painting? I have always painted. Um, I've always drawn. Uh, I think my first I, uh, piece that actually was, a, you know, sort of picked out by my teacher and, you know, hung on the walls and so on was when I was in kindergarten and uh, maybe four. And it was a painting of autumn leaves. And it's just never occurred to me not to be painting and drawing. Since we cannot show your paintings on our podcast, can you describe what and how you like to paint and draw? So the first thing is um, I have a very strong interest in patterns and particularly patterns that occur in nature. So everything from flocks of birds to uh, patterns of pebbles under ripples in a shallow stream to waterfalls to clouds, I can just go on and on. So that's that's one part of it. And and I think there is some overlap between my interest in patterns in mathematics and patterns in nature. But I also do a, a lot of portraiture. I um, More and more as I've gotten older, I've been doing paintings of children, of adults, of dogs and cats, <laughs> um, all kinds of things. And 
Um, and then I also do abstractions that are motivated by uh, any of the above or just by shapes and patterns. Well, I noticed, for example, in your paintings, you have one of Ali in the Garden, which is a child portrait, but you also have one entitled Reassembly Required, which it looks like a self-portrait, and yet it's broken up into several patterns so that it's a combination of abstract and figural. How do you choose which one you're going to go with? Well, in that particular case, that was during my um, second year, the first sem semester of my second year as President Mudd, and I was working with an executive coach uh, because I had gotten some feedback from faculty that they didn't like my style. They thought I was too blunt, too outspoken, um, variety of other things. And so I was working with this executive coach. Her name is Sabina Nawaz. She's fantastic. She said, Maria, as you work through this, there are going to be times when you feel a fair amount of frustration. So I think it would be good for you to do a painting that you can work on throughout this executive coaches coaching process so that you can express how you feel about it. And so the painting reassembly required was just this idea that I was going to be taking the person I was, taking the way I interact with the universe and modifying pieces of it. And so the painting that I did was in fact, I think seven uh, different uh, self-portraits from the same photograph uh, in slightly different colors. And the painting starts out that I'm happily smiling and then my head explodes and the pieces go all over the place and they sort of gradually come back together. Now, my son looked at this and he said, you know, it actually would look much more positive if you read it from, uh, instead of from left to right, which is the way it was painted, from right to left, because then, you know, here's your face that's a mess with lots of different pieces and it comes back and it's completely back in one place. And I said, uh, yes, but I'm, I've hung it opposite a mirror. And so you can look at either one. And in fact, it's hung in the hallway of the president's house uh, at Harvey Mudd College. And you can either look at it from left to right, which is how it was painted, which is called reassembly required, which basically my head exploded and then it had to be put back together. Or you could read it the other way, where my head was completely sort of misaligned and in pieces, and it came back, and it was perfectly together. Hmm. In the telephone call we had with you a few weeks ago, you told us a fascinating story about walking in a lake and seeing two ravens and then painting them. Could you tell us about that? Yes. So um, one of the things I love to do is, and I started doing this when I was a marathon runner, and uh, to run marathons, you have to do a lot of running per week. And my legs really sort of couldn't take it. So I did half of the running actually in deep water. And one of my favorite ways to exercise is to actually run uh, in deep water in a lake and then be able to watch the birds. And uh, there's a, a lake called Lake Arrowhead that's about an hour's drive from Harvey Mudd College. And I was uh, in late summer of last summer. I was uh, running in water, deep water, and there was this pair of ravens that were just doing the most extraordinary aerobatic uh, display. And, uh, and I later looked it up. I, I was pretty sure it was a mating dance, 
because I've just never seen ravens come so close together and do so many complicated maneuvers. And, uh, and so later I did uh, a pair of ravens who were um, to demonstrate what these ravens were doing. And I sort of tried to uh, articulate the motion by doing lots of sort of geometric designs that came out from their feathers and their wings and so on. And it's called raucous ravens. You, you mentioned you were painting from your earliest age that you can remember and that you had a painting about autumn leaves that you did at school. But the, from our previous conversation, I understood that um, at some point you stopped letting everybody know, especially your computer science colleagues know that you painted and then later that changed. Could you describe that process or journey for us? Yes, that is definitely correct. So, um, so first of all, I'm female and I'm a mathematician, computer scientist. And it's just a little bit difficult uh, given the era in which I, uh, you know, became a researcher to be taken seriously as a woman. And I have been the first female to hold my job for the last 33 years. And so it just felt like um, it felt in the early stages of my career, once I had finished my PhD, I mean, I was openly painting as a graduate student doing my PhD and, uh, and actually had an exhibition and all that kind of stuff. And then when I actually started work, I just decided, oh, it's hard enough being female in these fields. They don't need to know I'm an artist as well. And, and so I really, I mean, definitely my family obviously knew, my very close friends knew that I painted, but uh, it was not something I ever talked about at work. And the year that I turned 40, on my 40th birthday, I had 13 paintings framed and I hung six in my office. I was the head of the computer science department at the University of British, University of British Columbia and the others in our house and we had a lot of department events at our house um and uh it was just sort of my way of saying okay i'm here and i i want to say i turned 70 uh on monday of this week well oh, happy birthday thank you and uh it's really nice to think that that was 30 years ago that i did that and i will say what was interesting to me was the dean whom i reported to the dean of science came by my office and he looked at these paintings and he said, oh, you must find it so relaxing to paint. And I went, no, this is just as intense a creative activity as doing research or doing anything else. It's something that is just as important to me. And he sort of like backed out of my office. He clearly knew he'd put his foot in his mouth. Now, we've heard that you paint during meetings. Meetings are an intense activity, and I would think a lot of people, if they're seeing you paint or draw during a meeting, will wonder, is she listening? Is she participating? How does that help you, and why so, do you do it? Well, this started when I was became dean of science, um, which uh, I took that role at UBC in 1998. And I had always done my paintings on weekends. And unfortunately, um, deans of science across the country got together for, you know, every several months for meetings on weekends. And I found it intensely frustrating. 
that I couldn't paint, but I also have always had trouble keeping myself from talking too much. And so I decided that I would try painting at the meeting as a way of keeping myself more quiet. And I was very lucky that the person who was the Dean of Arts and Science at the University of Toronto, whose name uh, is Carl Amrine, he's the kind of person who's very twitchy at meetings. And he found that if he sat beside me and watched me paint, it calmed him down. So it kept me to be, both of us to be quieter by the fact that I was painting. Now, um, for those of you who are not Canadian, Canada is sort of, in Canada, the University of Toronto is the number one university. And so the fact that the dean from the University of Toronto clearly thought the fact that I was painting at meetings was totally fine, made it okay. And it somehow it became something that I just did at pretty much all meetings. And so, for example, uh, on, uh, on yesterday, we had a cabinet retreat for the senior leadership team at Harvey Mudd. And of course, I was painting throughout this retreat. But what was interesting about this particular one time was that I had been asked, we just uh, lost one of our vice presidents Washington University in St. Louis, and she asked if I would do a painting for her as a going away present that would be a Zoom of all nine people on cabinet. And so basically a small, you know, like a three by three portrait of each of the nine people arranged as the windows of a Zoom. And so of course, at the meeting, I was doing those portraits of the people a cabinet. So, um, yeah, it's everyone sort of takes it for granted now. The one place where uh, people were not enthusiastic about my doing paintings were on uh, two public company boards, Microsoft and uh, Broadcom. And, uh, and so I didn't paint at the, those board meetings, but I joined another uh, startup company board about uh, not quite two years ago called Glowforge. Uh, the founder, Dan Shapiro, is uh, a mud alum. And I told him about how much I love to paint at meetings. And he said, of course you can paint at Glowforge meetings. So at Glowforge meetings, I show them what I'm going to paint. And at virtually every other meeting I'm at, um, even if I'm doing it on Zoom, I show people at the beginning, at the end, what the painting is that I'm working on. I ask one last question before I hand off to Mark, which is you've been, you've been painting with knowledge of your colleagues for 30 years. Has there been a significant change in your style during that time? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I, I think there is a significant difference. Um, I, I think there's, I, I would say there's, a, I don't want to say abstraction, but uh, I would say in earlier days, I was doing things that were more landscapes or portraits and they were, I was focusing less on the pattern. And I would say over time, I've tended to do series of paintings about one particular thing. So I have a series called Flocks, which is of flocks of birds. I have a series of uh, snow trees, which is uh, just after a very heavy snowfall. I have a series of um, pebble patterns. And so I would say the, the thing that has become more pronounced 
as the years have gone by, I'm, I'm typically working on somewhat larger works and I'm working on things that, uh, where the, pa the patterning is more explicit than it was in the past. How have you been using, or have you been thinking about using AI in your uh, composition and painting? I think the way that I, so first of all, I have not used AI yet, but I have talked to actually some other artists that are using AI. And, um, and in fact, I was so intrigued with what AJ Kumar is doing at Cal Arts that um, I think when I retire from Harvey Mudd, I'm going to go take his class at Cal Arts so I can actually try some of the things he's doing. I think the thing I would love to do is explore using AI to look at different kinds of patterns, to be able to provide. So, for example, um, a painting I'm working on recently is of a startling murmuration, which is, for those of you who watch birds, you often see huge thousands of starlings coming together in all different kinds of patterns. And I'm very interested in the shapes you get from overlapping birds in sort of both, uh, both what you get uh, in the foreground, what you get as in the background. And um, I would love to actually do uh, a visual, an AI computer recognition program uh, on a variety of these shapes that I particularly like, and then ask uh, the program to generate similar kinds of shapes mm. and explore just exactly what would show up by doing that. Your, your comment about watching birds flying in large numbers reminds me of some, I, I saw a bunch of galahs uh, swarming in, in the sky in Australia some years ago. And it is astounding. The, I don't, I can't describe it. It's just, it was, it was mesmerized for like an hour just watching them fly. Um, so I get the sense of what you're talking about. Maybe. So how do you think um, AI might create opportunities or tools for painters? So I think the reality is that AI is very good at recognizing patterns. And what I've been talking about is doing paintings that are very much based on patterns. And I think, I mean, I think it's really possible to use AI as a tool that looks at a set of patterns that I find interesting and have it try to generate patterns that I would also find interesting that are different. So it's sort of like taking my imagination and pushing it way out and then letting me have the opportunity to, you know, be in feedback with the AI to say, well, I love this set, but that set I don't like at all. And to sort of fine tune it. And I think there's just an opportunity to explore much more quickly in more depth and more broadly using AI. And, you know, from talking to AJ, it's pretty clear that this is being used uh, both in music and in visual arts uh, pretty significantly right now. And uh, certainly in areas like anim animation and use sort of virtual worlds and video games and all those kinds of things, but also by people who are really focusing on doing art for the sake of art. 
And I think this will just become more and more prevalent as time goes on. So, you know, some years ago, um, computers conquered chess. And it, it seems like the interest in chess has uh, died a little bit, though maybe Queen's Gambit has, has changed that. It's hard to tell. Uh, do you worry about the use of AI reducing people's interest in painting? Well, it's not going to inter- reduce my interest in painting. Um, not really, because I, I guess the thing I would say is that I think what most people that I know who are artists are really interested in is trying to understand how they can create visual representations, whether they're of an abstraction or of reality or something in between that they think are communicating something. And I don't think, for example, like initially, I think a, a lot of representational art, you would have said, well, now that we can take photographs, I mean, who cares about art? I think the taking of photographs just made things much, much more wonderful for artists. So, for example, I used to do all of my painting outdoors, and and I was largely doing landscapes. And one summer, I was on Pender Island in British Columbia, which is at the time where we spent most of our time in the summer. And it was really hot, and you could not do watercolors outside. I was intensely frustrated. And this is back before digital cameras. But I went and I got my camera, and I took all kinds of photographs and had you know, got prints of them. And I said, fine, I'll print indoors. I'll, I will paint indoors. And there's no question that the experience was different, but it wasn't worse or better. It was just different. And so what I think right now is that, yes, the fact that AI is being used to create art of a wide variety of types, that's not going to make human people humans less interested in painting. It's give, going to give human, humans who want to be artists a greater set of tools. What about the group of humans in between? Not the ones who regard themselves as artists, but just want to draw sometime or paint sometime. Do you think AI will be appealing to them as tools also? Well, so first of all, I think absolutely everyone is an artist. And... I think I might have told you the story about my younger sister, Katrina. For her 50th birthday, I had taken her to uh, the Mayan Riviera. And um, I, of course, took my paints with me because I paint everywhere. And uh, as I'm taking my paints out, we're about to go to the beach and I'm going to paint. And she says, I've always wanted to be an artist, but I have no talent. And I said, of course you have talent. Everyone has talent. And here she is. She's. Uh, 66 this year, four years younger than me, and she is a phenomenal artist. And she has spent that time, the last 16 years, developing, taking lessons, uh, doing exhibitions. She's a carver. She a, a, does acrylics and oils. Um, I, I'm just so delighted that... That she said this because if she hadn't said it, 
I never would have had the chance to say, Katrina, of course you're an artist. So whenever somebody tells me that they're not an artist, I just say, you know, you just haven't, you haven't given yourself a chance. Like art, art is like everything else. Um, there's, there's stuff to be learned. There's stuff that some people will learn faster than others. But the reality is that everybody is capable of creating things that are of interest to them and to others. And so anyone who wants to draw, yeah, I think AI tools could actually give you an opportunity to learn more quickly. I mean, it, it feels to me, I haven't tried to do this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn more from AJ. And maybe that's what I do after I retire from Harvey Mudd. I start to teach. AI and art. Um, I think it's entirely possible that using AI, one could empower people to learn more quickly and to explore more broadly, even if they don't have a lot of experience drawing or painting or just doing things visually. It sounds like you think that painting is a deep part of your identity. Is that correct? And if so, what does that mean to you? Oh, I can't imagine not painting. I mean, I just, it's, it, I mean, just as you said at the beginning of this, it's a way of expressing things I find difficult to express in other ways. And it's a way of exploring ideas that I find difficult to explore in other ways. And I mean, I do draw, um, but I like painting better because. I've become so accustomed to painting and watercolors that it's like, it's just part of my thinking about how, if I want to explore a particular kind of thing, I, I'm going to try it with watercolors because that's what I'm accustomed to using. Does your college or any of the other Claremont colleges encourage students in the arts to explore how they might use AI in their work? I honestly don't know at this point. Um, we have a, a very um, talented visual artist as a faculty member, Ken Fendel, who uh, was the chair of the photography department at the Art Institute of Chicago, and uh, decided to move to Harvey Mudd. And you know, I asked him when he came, I said, you know, that's one of the top photography schools in, in the world. Why are you coming to Mudd? And he said, because I want to be teaching people who don't necessarily think of themselves as artists, which I just found incredibly interesting. Now, I do know that Ken co-taught a course on fluids with a math professor who taught the dynamics of fluids, and he taught the photography of fluids. I don't think they were using AI, but I think they were trying to understand the relationship between the mathematics of how fluids flow and the visual effects of how fluids flow. So I don't know whether we have taught a course like that at Harvey Mudd, but I know for sure they're, they're virtually all art schools are teaching them now. And do you think students seeing that you paint, that your engineering students themselves are encouraged more to try to do that? during when when they have time oh, i i think one of the things about a harvey mud that has nothing to do with me 
but I'm a good ambassador for it. Um, right from our founding, it was believed that it was very important, even though uh, all of our majors are STEM related, it was believed to be very important for students to take a significant number of courses in the humanities, social sciences, and the arts. And the reason for that was that we wanted to graduate engineers, scientists, and mathematicians who would understand the impact of their work on society. And it was felt that if you didn't have a strong background in humanities, social sciences, and arts, it's hard to do that. So because of that, we attract students who love some area in, we refer to it as HSA, humanities, social sciences, and arts, as well as uh, and areas in science and engineering and mathematics. And so it's, we take it for granted that people have passions that extend across that particular bridge. So uh, the classical masters were famous for having workshops full of apprentices to whom they taught their skills. The output of these workshops were generally signed by the master. Uh, contemporary art historians have pierced the veil a bit and given us some insight into this practice. Um, have you uh, worked with an apprentice or an assistant? Uh, would you? Oh, that's a great question. So first of all, um, no, I have not at this point. If I had uh if I had a student or another, you know, any other person who said they wanted to try doing something jointly together, I'd be happy to try it. But it wouldn't occur to me not to uh, have their signature on it as well. And yeah, and I would I'm think I would want to do it less as I'm the master, you're the apprentice, and more as let's discover what we can do together as a team versus what we can do as single artists. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the motivation behind it in the in the classical masters was uh, commercial. You wanted mm -hmm. to sell more paintings, and so you just needed them to look as much like the master's work as possible. Um, some describe the use of AI as augmenting human intelligence, uh, to borrow a phrase from the late Doug Engelbart. How would you view an AI in the role of apprentice or assistant? Oh, well, I guess I, I think there's sort of two ways of viewing it. One of them is as a tool. It's just like using photography or, you know, various other kinds of things. Um, you know, I, I will often work with Photoshop um, in terms of being able to size something that I want to, or to compare things together or whatever. And so I, I, to some level it's, and I haven't tried to check whether Adobe offers AI in some of their tools, but they probably, if they don't now, they will soon. And they may well do that. It's not something I've particularly gone looking for, but there's a certain extent to which, um, so I happen to be crazy about cats, and I'm also crazy about my grandchildren. And I think of them as providing a different perspective on life. 
And I would sort of think about if I were partnering with AI, I would think of it as adding a perspective, not so much being my apprentice, but as giving me a way to see things that I wouldn't see without the help. And and that's very much the way I feel about having the joy of being able to inter- interact with grandchildren is because they're, and my grandchildren are two and a half and one, because they're at a different age, they just see the things differently. And if you're paying attention, it's an enormously enjoyable learning opportunity. What do you view as your most important tools and techniques in painting? I think it's important to me to be able to control color and the balance of light and dark and shapes. I would, I mean, I think one of the things that's important to me is that if I want to make something look like something, then I can actually do that. Now, I don't, I mean, I've done these crazy, crazy pattern paintings. These are the uh, pebbles under, pebbles in the shallow stream under ripples. And they don't look like anything. And I'm just, I'm just sort of like mystified by, I can't come up with a mathematical explanation for why the certain certain kinds of repetition of patterns is, is going up. Um, but it is important to me that I'm actually able to create something the way I want it to look. So, uh, you know, I'm uh, when I do portraits, that's incredibly important because people either recognize people or they don't. And it's never entirely clear to me. Like you'll be working on something and it won't really look like somebody. And then all of a sudden it will flip into looking exactly like that person. And it could be that it's a shadow on their face. It could be that their hair is slightly different. It could be their ear. It could be their neck. I mean, it's bizarre. And so this ability to sort of have an idea of what you want to see and then knowing when you can see that, that's something that's important to me a lot. Yeah, recognizing people's faces is a fascinating thing. Some years ago, I had a full beard and had had it for many years. And then one day, uh, prompted by uh, my my girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, I shaved it off. And I shaved it off with no warning. And it was fascinating because some people didn't know who I was. Some people said, do you have new glasses? And some people didn't notice that there was a difference. And I, I have to assume that each of them, you know, used different cues to recognize me. Well, I have to say I had the same kind of reaction. So I have a very close friend who uh, uh, Charlie will definitely recognize the name. His name is Bob Tarjan. He's one of my best friends and he's a, a very well-known theoretical scientist. And um, he used to have long hair and a beard. <laughs> and one day, all of a sudden he had short hair and he was clean shaven. And it took me like days to get over the difference. I mean, I could tell it was the same person, but how could he possibly have the same personality when he looks so different? <laughs> uh, Charles has a question here. I, I, this is, I'm just sitting here awestruck, but one of the challenges we have with AI is 
you, you got to train it. You got to teach it. And, you know, as, as we, as you said earlier, uh, it's kind of hard for an artist or any sort of expert to put their finger on exactly what it is that allows them to do what they do. So I don't think we'll bother going down that uh, path when training AI for painting or art. But what we seem to be doing now is training them. Uh, you know, here's a bunch of examples. So we might show them all of uh, Maria's art and, uh, you know, okay, go make another one. And maybe it would learn or not. What troubles me, and part of my question here is, just like when we're trying to train them to, to recognize stop signs or cats versus golden retrievers, sometimes they pick up on stuff that you know, humans would not have picked up on and use that as the differentiator between a cat and a golden retriever. So I'm wondering, do you, with all this challenge, is AI going to, if it starts doing art, are we going to find whole new paths that may or may not be appealing to anybody but the AI? I, I suspect yes. I mean, I'd be surprised if, if, if not in some sense, because I think we are very conditioned by, I mean, there's just no question that we're conditioned by what we see as being quote unquote beautiful art or important art or you know I, I i can come up with lots and lots of different adjectives but basically so for example when um i took a, a fine arts course as an undergraduate i think i was a second year student and uh, it was a printmaking course and the faculty not the people teaching my course but the faculty who were in charge of the different sections of that printmaking course they were really into sort of cloud-like soft blobby objects. And I wasn't interested in doing that at all. And of course I got a horrible grade in the course. And, and I, which is fine. But it was sort of like I was sort of going like, so why if you're going to do prints, which you can do all kinds of different things, why are soft blobby objects the thing that's thought to be beautiful right now? So there's absolutely no question that over time, uh, society views certain kinds of things as wonderful art and other kinds of things as trash or bright or whatever. And there's just no question that that influences how we see things. So I'm pretty sure that once we, once we actually start training, well, I mean, it's already being done, but that as the training of AI on various kinds of whether it's animation or whether it's watercolors or abstraction or whatever, we're going to see that there are things that the AI is identifying that's not that we had not thought about. And I think that's good. I think I, it's it's just like um, now we we know that AI can do a better job of reading X-rays, right. on average, and uh, we're going to deter. We're going to learn new things, and I think that's good. I, I I I'm triggered by one of your words. You used the word beautiful, and I have to say that 
I, some of my favorite art uh, is not beautiful. I don't, I wouldn't call it that. Think of the scream. Okay. It's immensely powerful. It's very moving. I adore it. I would never accuse it of being beautiful. So no, I wouldn't either. So I, I, I try to avoid the word beauty in re relation to art. Cause I think that trivializes the message to a certain extent in my mind. So I wouldn't agree with that because I think that beauty is just one component of what could make you value a piece of art. And emotion is another one, which I think is what comes across in the screen. And a statement of, I mean, there's a lot of social justice art right now that is really making a statement about society and about inequity and unfairness and all kinds of things like that. And so I think art can be, it can convey a variety of messages, but I don't think that, I don't think art has to be beautiful to be important. I don't think that art being beautiful means it's necessarily not important. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about how you moved uh, over time further away from representational art and more towards abstract and patterns. And it reminded me of uh, an exhibition that my wife and I saw before the, in the fall before the pandemic started in Paris. It was a retrospective of Juan Miro's paintings. Okay. And at the beginning of his career, he did portraits. And then he moved further and further away from that into those wonderful abstractions with the gorgeous blue background. Um, and it's a pattern that's similar to Mondrian. So the question that this leads me to ask is, for artists, do you think AI is going to be most valuable by giving us, as you mentioned, it, patterns to look at that the artist may then add to their painting themselves with their own brush, or having the AI generate the pattern and that that be then added to the painting, either as part of a 3D printout or some other means? I think any of the above. So, you know, I think if I, um, just like watching the ravens in the mating flight, I can think about that influencing what I'm going to do in lots and lots of different ways. So, for example, uh, you, Roland, sent me a photograph of some egrets. And um, and I'm uh, I'm just starting working on that piece, and the fact that you sent that I'm I'm thinking about doing a whole series of pairs of birds in flight, and what's actually most interesting in that photograph you sent me is the way their reflections are distorted in the water because of the ripples in the water. So just by sending me that photograph, you've made me think about a whole series of other paintings I might think about doing, which really have to do with a pair of birds, because, uh, because I find birds extraordinarily beautiful, but also ways in which patterns either of their movement, but in this case, the reflection on rippled water causes you to see patterns and think about extensions of those patterns. And, and so when I think about using AI, it's all about 
seeing suggestions of ideas and wanting to iterate on them and magnify them and morph them, just do things with those ideas. And those ideas could come from anyone. And yes, I'm going to send you a photograph of the painting when it's done. Um, But it could come from, you know, it could come from a grandchild who is fascinated by, my grandson is fascinated by water running down into sewers. I can definitely think about doing a bunch of paintings that really has to do with waters going into grates. Um, and, and he would totally adore that, but you could get this from anywhere. And so I see AI just as another form of creating ideas, suggestions, images, patterns, whatever. I think the way you framed it earlier, um, you know, in all these podcasts we've done, I haven't heard anyone say it quite like this, but the way you said it in the sense that AI provides a different perspective, right? A different avenue or approach to thought. And I thought that was a really clear way of kind of expressing the tool or the opportunities that AI could present, particularly for an artist like yourself. And I was just curious listening to this conversation in a previous life. I wanted to be an art history major. You know, uh, my 11th grade teacher did not say nearly as kindly as you did that we are all artists um, as she was making separate projects for me because she did not deem me to be an artist. But what kinds of other perspectives are you interested? We spent some time talking about patterns. You've given this great example about the distortion of of the ripples on the water. Are there any other perspectives that you're interested in pursuing in your artwork that you think perhaps AI could be a helpful tool or opportunity for you? Well, I actually think that children, when they first start to draw, and, you know, we have these sort of ideas about what a stick figure looks like and what a house looks like and all those kinds of things. They're very traditional. And I don't mean so much that, but when my son, who's actually the father of the grandchildren, started to draw, he was doing these amazing sort of abstract figures and shapes and stuff. And I actually thought that he would become, you know, that he would pursue art. And I could never persuade him to do that. And, um, you know, he's a math computer science geek like his parents. He does stuff that's at the interface of AI programming languages and software engineering. Um, but, you know, I think there's I think there's a lot to be learned from what people produce when they haven't been influenced by what your teacher told you is a reasonable way to produce a, a mummy and a child or whatever, right? And I think that just like being interested in what AI might do, I think there's sort of a there's a there's a, a lot of possibilities there, and you know I remember uh, there's somebody I met in 1974. I don't remember it was 1974, but he does. He's an artist. He's his name is uh, Danik Mzjenski, and he's a, a very successful Canadian self-taught Canadian artist who does sculpture and. Uh, portraits and a variety of other kinds of things. When I first met him, he had spent, I think maybe two months up with the Haida. And 
had gone there to learn their perspective on art. And I mean, I, I just feel like we're not encouraging enough of people being willing to sort of go and ex just explore things from people who have different perspectives. Now, obviously, the Haida are, are incredibly successful artists, and um, but this was long before their art was, you know, uh, as cherished as it is today. And yet, he, as you know, uh, he must have been. Well, let's see, I was twenty-three, so he was twenty-two at the time. Um, had chosen to go spend months with them to understand their perspective on the world, and of course, many artists have done that by going, you know, to spend time with indigenous tribes in various parts of the world um, and so on. But I, I just feel like, think of AI as just another lens on the world. Can I ask, you, you've mentioned, we, we, we know that linguists posit that children have a, an innate ability to start to acquire language. With your children and, and your grandchildren now, do you have to show them a little bit about drawing or do you just have to give them a tool and do they start drawing on their own initiative, so to speak? Um, I had Amma's experience, the, the, the few teachers that looked at my drawing said it was terrible and I stopped but uh, and then resumed it years later just because I found I looked at things more carefully. But I've always wondered, do children just have an instinctual desire to draw and you don't need to do much to coax them to it. So I I think it's impossible to answer that question because, well, at least within our culture, because I think about how the time I spent with our own children and the time that I'm spending with my grandchildren, we spend so much time with books. And those, I mean, the first set of, sort of stories you tell them have beautiful illustrations of different kinds. And so I think it's, and and of course, they're generally, they are drawings or paintings. They're not photographs. And so we are starting the education of our children at very young ages with, with a variety of kinds of art forms. And, and so I think it's almost impossible that they wouldn't have the idea that they might reproduce some of those kinds of things. And, and if you look at, I mean, so one of my uh, favorite artists is Eric Carl and um, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. And, um, but there's, there's, there's also uh, a set of um, books right now from a, um, I'll forget the name of the author, he's French, but um, that's about uh, combining colors to get different kinds of things and combining shapes to get different kinds of things and so on. And so I feel like we can't ask that question given that we're exposing our children to so many forms of semi-representational, very representational, um, almost not representational at all art uh, in the books that they're seeing. And so I think it's almost automatic that when they go to their first play school or uh, you know, when they're given uh, 
you know, a, a whiteboard and markers. Um, they're also, they're being introduced to things like shapes, like circles and rectangles and triangles and all of those kinds of things. And all of this is, that's also about art. So I, I, I think we, we are immersing them in so much visual representation that I honestly don't know what they would draw if they hadn't seen any of that or whether they would want to draw. Which makes it to me all the more puzzling that some boards would have told you they didn't want you to paint during a meeting. <laughs> well, I think they thought it wasn't respectful enough. Wow. <laughs> yeah, one one of my colleagues uh, in a rather, well, all the senior managers in, a, in the, the larger department had this one operations meeting that we had to go to every week or two. And uh, she was likely the most brilliant person in the room. And she proceeded to knit throughout these meetings. And throughout, as we went through one VP and the next one and the next one, she continued to knit and was able to keep full track of what was going on in the meeting. Uh, one of those uh, annoying students that can be fooling around with their phone and then you ask them, well, do you understand what I just said? And they repeat it back to you. Well, she could do that. Do you find that uh, the painting makes it even easier for you to focus on both? I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, I definitely, I'm a much better um, listener if I'm painting. There's, there's just no question. That's amazing. But I think, well, but I think it's partly because if I'm painting, I'm not trying to think of a question to ask. Yes, I like that. I'm focusing <laughs> on what I'm hearing. So when I first went to Princeton as the Dean of Engineering, well, in fact, when I was interviewing for that job, I was talking to a very well-known biologist and I asked him if he thought it was going to be a problem if I painted at meetings. And he said, well, I like to knit at meetings. <laughs> and I sort of went, and he said, the only problem is that sometimes people think of it as um, an element of disrespect. And so I sort of have to be careful to explain ahead of time why I'm knitting. And I thought that was actually helpful, but turned out when I uh, came, showed up at Princeton, the, uh, uh, the president, Shirley Tillman, absolutely loved that I painted at meetings. So it was fine. And I think for her, it was uh, it was just representing that uh, you know, you can be a scientist or an engineer and also be an artist or a musician or anything else, and that that's all fine. But it's interesting that you're comfortable having others watch you while you're painting and actually see what you're painting. You mentioned that the president of Toronto University sitting next to you, I take it he was able to see some of what you were drawing. That calmed him. But yes. it doesn't make you unduly self-conscious to have somebody watching you. Yeah, I don't think it bothers me at all at this point, And I have no idea why. But it's just, I'm completely, I'm both immersed in the meeting and immersed in the painting. And the fact that somebody's watching. So I had an experience, I got elected to the board of the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And when I went to the first meeting, I was painting a uh, uh, portrait of two grandchildren of 
the chair of the board of Pitzer College, which is one of the other Claremont colleges. And he had watched me painting at a number of board meetings. We have a, a shared board for the, the Claremont colleges where it's all the presidents and all the chairs of their boards. And he'd watched me painting a number of times. And he finally said, you know, I was wondering if you could go painting for me. And I said, of course. And so he came to me picture of his grandchildren. And I was doing it. The person sitting beside me at the meeting was uh, Carolyn Ainsley, who's the CFO of the Gates Foundation. And she just sat beside me the entire time. I was just totally amazed at watching this painting just appear. And yeah, I just don't think about it anymore. It's just, you know, it's something I'm doing. Would you You're... go ahead, Charles? I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, well, I was going to say your, your comment about um, technical people uh, and artists, uh, it's just another expression of their abilities. I've always followed the rule uh, or realized the rule uh, the best programmers are musicians or bridge players. And to me, that means patterns. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I guess there's patterns in art as well. Yeah, absolutely. And well, you know, it's one of the it, one of the things that, that I found really quite uh, ironic when as I went into my career as a computer scientist and mathematician was that nobody thought it was weird to be musicians or bridge players for that matter. But being a visual artist was weird. And I think now it's less weird, which is all good. Am I correct that you wouldn't want AI, however, to be commenting on your work or suggesting anything to you while you're doing it, if it ever got that capability? Oh, I don't think it would particularly bother me. I think I would just ignore it. <laughs> I mean, I, I would probably listen, and I would see if I agreed, and if I didn't agree, I would just ignore it. Well, can, can I ask a question then of, of sort of the elephant in the room, which is, if AI would create a painting itself, do you think it's important for the observer, for other people when they come to look at the work, to know that it was generated by AI rather than by a human? Do you think that it's important to keep that distinction, or when AI has been a co-collaborator or co-creator of a painting, that that should be highlighted rather than having the AI be given a name like Watson and somebody thinks that it's therefore a person? Um, I think I would probably want to know just because I would find it really interesting. You, you know, I mean, I well, well, let me talk about myself. If I was to do a piece that... I did in collaboration with AI. I would definitely want to say this because I think it's that would be interesting just in its own right that that I had chosen to do that, that this is what came out of it. And you know, I would probably also want to uh, you know, have some kind of narrative about how it was different from something, how it had changed what I had created. And I think I would want to do that just to educate people that this is possible. And similarly, if something was completely produced by AI, now, you know, it's not going to be completely produced because it's going to be trained by someone, you know, I mean, it's going to come using some kind of system that somebody created, but, you know, there's, 
so there's a, a guy named Perry Cook who was uh, a faculty member in the CS department uh, while I was at Princeton, and he's he's done some really interesting things, and his students have done really interesting things. So AJ Kumar did his um, the course I mentioned earlier at CalArts. He did his PhD with Perry Cook at Princeton, and so his students have done things in between music and AI and in between art and AI and in between both and AI. And, uh, you know, my sort of feeling is that one of the ways we educate people about how the world is changing is to let people know when AI is involved in a decision. Mm. And, you know, similarly, so I'm on a, uh, an advisory committee for the Schwarzman College of Computing at MIT. And um, one of the things they are doing right now is a series of policy forums uh, about between AI researchers and people in government that are implementing policy that might be influenced by AI. And so I had a conversation with uh, one of those, one of the faculty members at MIT who's involved in that. And you know, I think we just, it's just important to, it's important to be willing to explore what the possibilities are and to educate people about what the policies are or, or, or what the possibilities are and to actually, you know, it would be, from my perspective, it would be a mistake not to tell people if something had involved AI because that's a good way for people to learn about what AI can do. Dr. Clave, you've been very generous with your time and even more generous with sharing your thoughts and observations in response to our questions. And I think all of us have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And we want to thank you very, very much for being willing to join us on this podcast. Well, I just want to say thank you for having me. I've enjoyed this conversation. And of course, you guys have stimulated my interest in actually doing some artwork with AI. We thank the Business Law Section of the American Bar Association for their generous sponsorship of the production of this podcast. We welcome questions and comments from listeners. Send email to comments at mindthegapdialogues.com. We read all comments and questions and will try to respond in the letters section of a future episode. If you are writing about a particular episode, please do mention the specific episode number. Please also do include pronunciation tips to help us properly say your name when we reply in a subsequent episode. See you next time on Mind the Gap, Dialogues on AI. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.